Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by Yale University. This keynote address at the Faith and Citizenship Conference is delivered by Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion. It was part of a two-day conference held on May 3rd and 4th at Yale Divinity School. Harold Attridge, Dean of the Divinity School, gives an introduction. Dion takes questions after speaking. Welcome to the first session of a conference on faith and citizenship at Yale Divinity School. I'm Harry Attridge, Dean of the School. In recent years, religion increasingly has become a major factor both in politics of our nation and around the world. In the U.S., the conversation about religion and politics has most frequently been framed as a reaction to the religious right or as a struggle pitting emphasis on personal moral values over against moral values that seek to serve a public good. As we consider the topic, it seemed to us that a different public discussion of faith and politics was urgently needed, and that it should begin with an examination of the synergy between our identity as people of faith and our identity as citizens. Further, this is not simply an American question. This is a discussion requiring examination in a global perspective. We offer this conference as an invitation to a new public conversation about these issues. The conference is beginning, and we do not expect it uh, is a beginning, and we do not expect it to cover all aspects of the topic. Over the past several years, we've held a series of conversations regarding faith and public life. One event in February, for instance, entitled Voices and Votes, Religious Convictions in the Public Square, included major representation by evangelical religious leaders. Today's conference is largely a conversation between people from mainline Protestant and Catholic traditions that are at the core of the historic communities of Christian conviction here at Yale Divinity School. At a later date, we hope to expand these conversations with international partners as well as friends from other faith traditions. At this conference, we're fortunate to have a rich gathering of clergy, theologians, and laity from many walks of life, including political leaders and journalists. We have several laypersons with theological training who went on to develop their vocation in various forms of public service. We're especially thankful to have E.J. Dion with us today to help frame the conversation for the rest of the conference. Mr. Dion is a widely respected columnist at the Washington Post and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is a senior uh, advisor to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, author of three books, and co-editor of several books relevant to issues of faith and citizenship, including One Electorate Under God, a dialogue on religion and American politics. He is a frequent commentator on national public uh, radio and television and on pro uh, programs of various sorts too numerous to mention. He is also university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University. It is my very great privilege to welcome here for this first session of our conference E.J. Dion. Uh, I'm assuming my talk will be sold with the SpongeBob reruns. Uh, when, uh, it's very exciting, all this podcasting. That was such a generous introduction. It was uh, much more generous than the one I received recently in uh, Minnesota that began. And now for the latest dope from Washington, here's E.J. Dion. 
Um, and it's also kind of you to invite someone who's been in journalism for so long. We are not always highly uh, respected. And I, as you know, these days, when you write a column, your little address is at the bottom. And people write back a lot. And it is, I think, the result of original sin that most people write you more when they disagree than when they agree. And one of the repeatable uh, negative emails I got once began, Dear Mr. Dion, are you as dumb in person? Uh, and so whatever else you get out of this talk, you'll be able to answer that question for yourself. Um, I, I, I love talking about this subject, and I especially sort of like the idea of kind of turning it around because we've gotten so accustomed uh, to the idea that religion lives on the right and only on the right end of the political spectrum. And some people here have heard me tell this story before. It is one of my favorite stories on this subject, and it's the story of Mrs. O'Reilly being taken to the polls by her son. And Mrs. O'Reilly is 89 uh, years old. She has always voted straight Democratic. Her son is upper middle class, very successful. He started voting for a lot of Republicans. His mother's sort of political loyalty frustrates him a little bit, but he still takes her to the polls. And one day, as always, he asks her, how are you going to vote? And she says, as always, straight Democratic. And the son finally, in frustration, looks at her and says, you know, Mom, if Jesus came back to Earth and ran as a Republican, you would vote against him. And Mrs. O'Reilly replied immediately, hush, why should he change his party after all these years? <laughs> and I think a lot of the commotion in our politics right now is a lot of people seem to think he has changed his party after all these years, but we will get to that. Um, the other thing is there are many varieties of faith-based politics that we don't pay any attention to. Uh, and Mario Cuomo uh, once called people's attention to one I bet you didn't think of. He, or I, certainly I didn't. Um, he described a gentleman called Fishhooks McCarthy. And Fishhooks was a member of the legendary Albany Democratic machine. And Fishhooks would go into St. Mary's Church in Albany, New York, every morning, and he would pray the same prayer, Dear Lord, give me health and strength, I'll steal the rest. Um, it's a unique approach to faith-based politics. It's not only a great honor to be here to give this address, it's also intimidating, and intimidating on many fronts. Uh, first, this audience includes uh, many, many people I admire and who have given so much serious and profound thought to the issues uh, that I am trying uh, to address notably two Yale Divinity grads uh, who have rendered so much distinguished and courageous service to our country. Gary Hart, is Senator Hart here? Where is, is he's on his way. Neither of them are here yet, but they're both on their way. Uh, and the other representative, David Price of North Carolina. I just want to say about Senator Hart that uh, as a journalist, I, he, um, I, as a result of him, I made one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made as a journalist. He came to a lunch I organized at the Brookings Institution months and months and months before 9-11. And he and Senator Warren Rudman had been working on a commission on terrorism. Um, and he was positively engaging, persuasive, and petrifying uh, over the terrorist threat that we confronted. And this is long before 9-11. And to this day, I kick myself for not jumping up and down and writing about it. And I'm very, um, you know, and I think our country would have been a lot safer if we had uh, paid attention to him then, and I think he's been ahead of the curve on a great many issues. And David Price is, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a brilliant congressman from North Carolina. Um, 
he, um, God works in strange ways. He, when he was first elected, uh, he was running against a very, very conservative Republican who was also part of the Christian right. Uh, and this uh, Republican sent out a mailing saying if David Price is elected, uh, it will be a victory for Satan. Uh, that uh, argument did not go over so well once people learned that he not only went to this august uh, institution, the Yale Divinity School, but also that he was an elder of, uh, I believe, his Presbyterian church, uh, and he defeated the incumbent in that race by about 20,000 votes. David, however, also as he all, has written uh, a great deal about religion and politics, and I just want to share something with you from David because I think it bears very much on what we're going to be talking about here in the next couple of days. Uh, in an essay, he asked, he called on us uh, to recall the words of Lincoln's second inaugural, all the more remarkable, he noted, uh, for being uttered after almost four years of civil war. And as many of you know, Lincoln said, both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange, Lincoln went on, that any men dare, should dare to ask a just God's assistant in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not, that we not be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, and that of neither has been answered fully. Price went on to say, uh, quote Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote that this passage puts the relation of our moral commitments in history to our religious reservations about the partiality of our own moral commitments more precisely, I think, than any statesman or theologian has put them. Uh, Lincoln expresses the moral commitment against slavery in uncompromising terms, along with his determination to finish the work we're in, but there follows the religious reservation, the recognition that ultimate judgment belongs to God alone, the refusal, even in this extreme instance, to presume an absolute identification between his own cause and God's will. And David went on to suggest that we reject the political pretensions of those who would claim divine sanction for their own political uh, program. Uh, there are compelling reasons for this, he said, rooted in the theology of divine transcendence, human freedom, and responsibility, and the pervasiveness of sin and pride for refusing to identify any particular ideology or agenda with the will of God and for rebuking those who presume to do so. Uh, for the prophet Isaiah said that, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Thus endeth the lesson from David Price. Um, now, Father Brian Hare was supposed to be here, and I am very sad that he can't be. He was another one who intimidated me. He is not only one of the most brilliant people I have ever met, but also the warmest and least arrogant, and I always wonder how he can manage that. And my friend Amy Sullivan, uh, where, whom I saw earlier, where are you, Amy? Um, there you are. Um, who has done so much fine work on this topic and is publishing a brilliant book next year, which everybody in this room should read. And there are really so many others. But I was also intimidated by the subject itself. I am being asked to address and resolve, as far as I can tell, all of the most difficult questions revolving around uh, religious, political, and civic life, not only uh, in the United States, but around the world. Now consider what this means. This means not just our own struggles for religious freedom uh, over justice and religion's role in American public life. It also presumably means the role of Islam in world politics and Islam's attitudes toward freedom, tolerance, and pluralism. It means the rise of Hindu nationalism in India and the struggles between Hindu nationalist, Muslim, and secular forces in the largest democracy in the world. 
It means a conflict between secularism and Islam in Turkey, where it created turmoil this week in that country's presidential election, and also in France, where the issue has an impact on this Sunday's election, and also in the Netherlands. It means discussing the battles between the Catholic Church and the socialist government in Spain, the complex relationship between Catholicism and government in Poland, and debates in Israel over the formal role of Orthodox Judaism. It means talking about the struggle for religious freedom in China and in many other nations where religious liberty is curtailed or denied. It means the reemergence of the Orthodox Church as a power in Russia following the fall of communism, the role of liberation theology in Latin America, the influence of the established church in Britain, or lack thereof, uh, and the use of government to support churches in Germany. It means looking at the struggles in the Anglican Communion over homosexuality. And it also means answering two excellent questions Brian Hare posed at an important essay a few years ago. How do groups with different moral traditions influence the formation of US foreign policy? And how should religious and moral tenets guide foreign policy? And God help me, that is just a partial list of the issues before us. Well, I discussed my problem uh, with John Lindner. And John, thank you for all your work on this conference. And he very kindly said, don't worry. You won't have to give definitive answers to all the questions. That's what the conference is about. Now, that was a great relief. Uh, indeed, with the list I have just offered, I have transferred all responsibility for answering all the hard questions to all of you. Uh, I am certain that by the time we leave here, you will have come up with a principled and comprehensive view that covers all of these and many other vexing questions. Thus, my plan now is to offer just a few tentative answers to a few questions and also to pose some questions for which I have still not found satisfactory answers, but which I am hoping you will all resolve. I'd begin by suggesting that almost all of our discussions of religion and civic life, religion and citizenship, are in some ways bounded by our own concerns, our own interests, our own political commitments that may be closely connected to our religious convictions or may be less closely connected with them than we sometimes claim. There are great paradoxes in this discussion. We could hold a conference around a single statement by one of my Georgetown students this semester in a religion and politics class I teach there. Uh, the student wrote, and I paraphrase, in the West, we feel obligated to justify our religious goals in secular terms. In many Islamic societies, secular goals must be justified in religious terms. Now, that quite brilliant statement is certainly subject to debate and dissent. Uh, but it describes how quite nicely how difficult these issues are. Uh, if we confine ourselves to Christianity, the problem is difficult enough. Uh, one of Yale's finest scholars, H. Richard Niebuhr, began a lecture on religion and the democratic tradition at the Berkeley Divinity School in October of 1940 with these words, uh, to speak again of the relations of Christianity and democracy is to venture on ground well-trodden by angels and fools. Uh, Niebuhr explained the desire of so many of us to find links between democracy and our own traditions, in his case and mine, Christianity, this way. Uh, we tend to become so devoted to Christianity that we do not inquire too diligently into its character. We love democracy so dearly that we do not ask it too many questions about its heredity, its religion, its virtues, and its vices. We find beauty in both because we love them, as well as love them because they are beautiful. Defensiveness increases confusion in this realm. 
As was always true of both Niebuhr brothers, Richard was acutely aware of the paradoxes and contradictions involved in answering the question he was facing. On the one hand, he saw the danger of pretending that democracy was divinely ordained. When the divine absolute is acknowledged, he wrote, all human absolutes appear as dangerous usurpers of the kingdom of God. He noted that if Lincoln's phrase of the people, by the people, and for the people were taken literally, as Lincoln himself did not take it, Niebuhr quickly added, then Christian faith must question it as an adequate definition of government. Niebuhr went on. No people can live in the world of God who live for themselves, who consult only their own desires in making laws, who are their own last court of appeal, their own beginning, and their own end. Yet in the end, perhaps reflecting the fact that he, like many of us, perceived beauty in both Christianity and democracy, concluded that democracy is a gift which is added to men who seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. Here's how Richard Niebuhr reached that conclusion. The positive relation between Christian faith and democracy, he wrote, is more a moral and intellectual one. Whenever confidence in the rule of God is vital in a society, it leads to the limitation of all human power to increase participation by people in government, to the willingness to grant liberty to men, and to the political recognition of human equality. Whether or not these are the marks of a true democracy, they are the features of the political organization of nations which have been influenced by Jewish and Christian faith. Now, I happen to agree rather passionately with Niebuhr on this, and yet I do so bearing in mind his own admonition that perhaps I do not want to see any conflict between the traditions of Christianity and Judaism and the tradition of democracy because I too love them both so fervently. Christians and Jews certainly did not always revere democracy as most Christians and Jews do today. At the very time Niebuhr spoke, a significant wing of German Christianity was defending dictatorial rule that led to genocide. My own Catholic Church was far more open to democracy after Vatican II and the papacy of Pope John XXIII than it was before. Indeed, attacks on liberal democracy were common among Orthodox Catholics and some papal spokesmen in the late 19th century. I cannot resist sharing with you a few words from a pamphlet my friend Peter Steinfels uh, called to my attention some years ago. It was published in Spain in 1886 with the delightful title, El Liberalismo es Pecado, Liberalism is Sin, uh, by a gentleman called Don Felix Sarda y Salvini. The essay was so ferocious that even the Vatican's holy office, which was then not all that hot on liberalism, condemned it while also rebuking its detractors. Liberalism, the pamphlet declared, is a greater sin, and I'm quoting it, a greater sin than blasphemy, theft, adultery, homicide, or any other violation of the law of God. It is the evil of all evils, the offspring of Satan and the enemy of mankind. The author of this pamphlet condemned the odious and repulsive attempt to unite liberalism and Catholicism. The Catholic liberal, he said, is both a traitor and a fool, a pagan at heart, a pawn of the devil, less excusable than those liberals who have never been within the pale of the church. Was it sufficient for loyal Catholics simply to dodge the liberals' blows? Not at all, he wrote. The first thing necessary is to demolish the combatant himself. Now, here's a guy who can make Dobson or Falwell Limbaugh or O'Reilly look like Paul Wellstone or Hubert Humphrey or Senator Gary Hart. Um, it is not a view of Christianity or Catholicism that can easily be reconciled 
with Richard Niebuhr's comforting view of democracy as a natural extension of Christianity. It is thus important for us to try to be clear on a number of questions. First, how successful and how permanent is the reconciliation of Christianity to democracy, toleration, and pluralism? Is Niebuhr correct that a belief in a sovereign God necessarily leads to a view that limits the power of the state, including a theocratic state? How would we answer these same questions about the Jewish tradition? And if indeed the links between Christianity and Judaism and democracy are strong and durable, what are we make to make of the present and possible future connections between democracy and the orientation of that other great monotheistic religion, Islam? We already know that Islam can be compatible with democracy. Muslims play a vital role in democracies in which they find themselves a minority. India notably, but also in the United States and Canada and Great Britain, among many other places. We also know that Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, has enjoyed some success in its struggle toward democracy. That Pakistan, with the world's second largest Muslim population, has had moments of democracy. And of course, Turkey, despite past and current problems, has also made democracy work. I have not brought up where Iraq fits into all this because we already have more than enough problems to deal with as it is. Now, there is a great debate on how successfully Islam can accommodate itself to modernity and democracy as a theoretical and theological matter. Now, true, as those quotations I just read suggest, many once doubted Roman Catholicism's ability to make such an accommodation, and perhaps the Catholic example is a heartening one. Yet Catholicism itself was greatly affected by the Reformation and the Enlightenment. It had and continues to have a kind of dialectical relationship uh, with modernity. What of Islam? Uh, in thinking about this, I went back to an important essay by Fuad Ajami on what he called the impossible life of Muslim liberalism. I cite here uh, because I think it describes the challenge and because it has the same texture as so much of what was written about Catholicism's failed encounter with liberalism in the late 19th century. Ajami wrote, a whole literature of Muslim apologetics has stressed the compatibility between Islam and democracy, Islam and tolerance, and so on. All that literature was part of a long intellectual dialogue that these modernists had carried on with Western intellectuals and clerics. They were busy debating with a foreigner. They looked past the popular sensibilities of the masses, past the intolerance of religion and the obscurantism of religious uh, institutions, and thus they were not ready when Islam refused to take a bow to deliver its exit lines. Now, it seems to me that the task that both Niebuhr's and John Courtney Murray, among others, took on in the 1940s and 1950s to develop what might be called a theology of democracy is once again an urgent task. Uh, it remains urgent for Christians and Jews, but it is also vital work for many others, including our Muslim brothers and sisters. Related to this is the work we must do in the West in developing a model of pluralism that deals not simply with toleration among different varieties of Christians, not simply with openness between Christians and Jews, but with the question of what religious pluralism looks like when religious diversity explodes in free societies. Will Herberg's famous book about American pluralism from the 1950s, Protestant Catholic Jew, would now have to be called Protestant Catholic Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Sikh, Jain, Confucian, Baha'i. And I know I'm leaving some people out even in that ungainly 
if reasonably inclusive title. How are free societies to manage religious freedom in this context? There are many models, but two very distinctive ones, the American approach and the French approach, call themselves to mind. Consider the 2003 controversy in France over the ban on Muslim headscarves and other conspicuous religious symbols in the country's public schools. President Jacques Chirac's stand on the issue called forth some startling ironies. On a weekend of December of 2003, uh, an Iranian foreign ministry spokesman uh, condemned the Chirac government for, and I quote, an extremist decision aimed at preventing the development of Islamic values in France. Now imagine being called an extremist on religious questions by an official of the Iranian government. Uh, meanwhile, thousands of French Muslims demonstrated in favor of the veil. It was reported at the time that some Muslim girls in France were thinking of attending Roman Catholic schools so that they could continue to wear their scarves. Astounding, no? The French government's heavy emphasis on secularism was, of course, rooted deep in the country's history in reaction against Catholicism's domination of the state before the French Revolution and the church's opposition to liberal values into the early part of the 20th century. Suddenly, we face the prospect of Muslim women seeking to vindicate their religious rights through Catholic institutions. And how often does the Bush administration have a chance to out-liberal the French? Uh, at the time, uh, the, uh, John uh, Hanford, the U.S. Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom, chided the French and declared that students who wore visible religious symbols as, quotes, a heartfelt manifestation of their beliefs have a basic right that should be protected. An anonymous French official who spoke to the New York Times said dryly of our country, very often there were debates on the Pledge of Allegiance uh, or other religious issues in the schools, uh, never have you heard a French diplomat comment on an internal debate in the United States. Now, Chirac actually deserves some credit at the time for linking his decision on the bail with a necessary call for a renewed fight against xenophobia, racism, and anti-Semitism. He acted in response to both uh, liberal and right-wing fears. French liberals worry about the rise of anti-Semitism and the challenge that had scarves posed to women's rights. The far right gained ground, although blessedly lost some in the last uh, election, in the first round of this election, um, by exploiting prejudice against Muslim immigrants. But I think Chirac's problem was made more difficult because the French version of secularism is different from its American variant. Uh, the American approach provides more room, I think, for settling conflicts of the sort France and others among our European friends now confront. One does not have to be a chauvinist to see certain advantages to the American approach. And I should just say um, that, uh, as you can tell from my last name, I am of French uh, background. I am the worst kind. I am a French Massachusetts liberal. Uh, and so I take no joy in bashing the French. I once wrote a column saying I wanted to create a Franco-American anti-defamation league. So I don't say this for the usual freedom fries reason, but rather because I think there is something very powerful about our approach uh, to pluralism. Both France and the United States see their respective governments as secular in the sense that they do not sponsor any particular faith. But the historian Wilfred McClay has noted that there are at least two kinds of secularism. One is largely negative, aimed at protecting religion from government establishment and interference. The other sees secularism as an alternative faith that supersedes the tragic blindness and destructive irrationalities 
of the historical religions. People are free to act on their religious beliefs in private, Maclay has written, as long as they do not trouble the rest of us with them or disturb the proverbial horses. Uh, Maclay is critical of this view and prefers the negative approach because it limits the government's claims and respects religion's contribution to the public realm. On the whole, the United States has operated within this limited framework, while French secularism has been more aggressive in pushing religion to the margins of public life. The difference between the approaches has already played itself out on the schools issue. Uh, in 1995, the U.S. Department of Education issued guidelines that drew a distinction between the rights of individual public school students and the duty of teachers and school administrators. Uh, the public schools were not to have uh, formal organized prayer, but students were free to wear religious garb and symbols, to pray voluntarily on school grounds, to read the Bible or other holy books at study halls. Uh, but school officials had a duty not to endorse uh, any religious doctrine, nor could they coerce students into participating uh, in any religious activity. The balance Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton said at the time, demonstrated that the Constitution does not require uh, children to leave their religion uh, at the schoolhouse door. These guidelines became a bit more ambiguous after a U.S. Supreme Court ruling on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, but the idea behind them is still right. Government institutions should not sponsor religion, but must respect the consciences of individuals who operate uh, within uh, religious traditions. Um, uh, later guidelines gave the same protection to religious federal employees. Now, the American tradition cannot simply be transposed to France or to other nations, and before we Americans crow, we should reflect on expressions of religious bigotry in our own history. But the conflicts that confronted Chirac and face many other Western nations suggest that America's limited form of secularism may well, as Maclay has written, provide an essential basis for peaceful coexistence in a religiously pluralistic society. The more limited American secularism is in fact rooted in a basic respect for religious traditions and not in hostility to religion. Our friends among those you might call the neo-atheists may have a problem with this, but I think that experience suggests that it is a sounder and at least more practical approach. I say this, by the way, with great respect for our non-believing friends, because I think Peter Berger was right when he wrote, God has not made it easy for human beings to believe, and the world provides good grounds for unbelief. But respecting the many who believe, and who believe in diverse ways, will, I believe, bring us closer to authentic freedom than the imposition of a pure or dogmatic secularism. Now, I have spoken so far about religious faith and democracy and religious freedom at a time of radical diversity. But these aspects of the question lay heavy stress on individual rights, the positive right of individuals to participate in the process of governing themselves, and the negative right of individuals to hold their views, including their religious views, free from coercion by the state. But where does the community fit in here? The idea of common bonds and common duties. Where do we have, what do we have to say about the requirement described in the Christian tradition as an obligation to the least among us, and in the Jewish tradition as tzedakah, the obligation to act charitably toward others, and tikkun olam, uh, the obligation to repair and improve the world. The quest for community, I believe, is at the bottom of so much of the recent commotion about religion's role in public life in our country. One of the central facts about the United States since the 1960s 
has been the disestablishment of white Protestantism as one of the central organizing forces of American moral and cultural life. The election of John F. Kennedy marked the full entry of Roman Catholics into the mainstream of American civil rights. The civil rights movement sought to right historic wrongs done to African Americans. The 60s saw the sweeping away of many longstanding social and economic barriers against Jews and new movements to defend the rights of immigrants from Latin America, Asia, and the Caribbean. We see all these things as great social gains, and we are right to do so. I certainly welcome them all. But with the decline of the cultural influence of white uh, Protestantism uh, came the loss of a civic glue that the old Protestant values provided, a civic glue that in many cases was mixed in this, uh, very at this very institution. The new discourse about religion in public life is more inclusive and in theory at least far more open. Yet for all its newness, I think our current discourse still looks back to the older Protestant tradition in America as it tries to mix a new civic glue, a public philosophy that tries to marry individual and social responsibility, uh, personal and public fulfillment. Uh, I should note that I think all Americans, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Muslim, and even atheists, are all a little bit Protestant because we have all been shaped by this great individualistic tradition uh, and I once covered the Vatican for the New York Times, and I can assure you that many friends, many of my friends in the Vatican also thought that American Catholics were more than a little bit uh, Protestant. Um, I will not pretend here to provide a magic recipe for a new civic glue. I do think that some of its ingredients can be found in the writings of the Niebuhrs and Philip Selznick and Robert Bella, Michael Walzer, Bill Galston, Amitai Etzioni, Jim Wallace, and of course my friend Brian Hare and indeed for many other thinkers who are gathered in this room. I think that some of the recipe can be found in the theologies developed in the civil rights movement and in the African-American church, including notably uh, the sermons and, and teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in the rich tradition of Catholic social thought, in aspects of the Protestant social gospel, though with the important corrections offered by Reinhold Niebuhr, and also in the new enthusiasm within modern evangelical Protestantism for environmental stewardship and an engagement to the poor. In my view, there has never been a better moment for a new religious conversation, especially one organized around the theme of community. We meet at a moment when the religious winds are changing. The future of religious engagement with American public life will not, I believe, be defined by the events of the recent past. Beginning in the late 1970s, much of the public discourse assumed that religion lives on the right, an assumption that shaped how religion was covered in the mass media. Once the media had paid much attention to a broad range of religious figures, from Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, and Karl Barth, uh, to Abraham Heschel, John Courtney Murray, Billy Graham, and Martin Luther King. Beginning in the late 70s, the focus of interest narrowed. To be sure, Pope John Paul II got his share of attention, but in the United States, the attention lavished on Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell uh, and later James Dobson suggested that to be religious was to cling to a rather narrow set of social and political views. The public voice of religion as reflected in the supposedly liberal mass media was deeply inflected with a particular brand of, of conservative, often southern evangelicalism. But in the new millennium, new religious voices are rising to challenge as stereotypical views of religious faith. I speak not, uh, here not only of Jim Wallace, Amy Sullivan, Bob Edgar, and others on the side of religious progressivism, 
There is also Rick Warren, a religious and political conservative, who nonetheless insists that if Christians do not care about the poorest among them in the world, uh, they are not being true to their faith. There is Rich Sizek, a loyal conservative official of the National Association of Evangelicals, who has fought tough internal battles to stand up for the idea that a concern for life must entail a concern for stewardship of the earth and an engagement with the problem of global warming. And there is Bono, who once said that he could be considered a man of the cloth only if the cloth was leather. He, too, has challenged Christians to stand up for the poor. Uh, and religious liberals who had spent much time reacting to the religious right in the 1980s, sometimes by arguing against religious engagement in politics altogether, found their voices as people of faith insisting on a different interpretation of their traditions and of the scriptures, including the insistence that whatever else one might try to make of Jesus' politics, it, it is highly unlikely that he would put cuts in gap capital gains taxes and the repeal of inheritance taxes at the top of the political agenda. Um, the era of the religious right is over. Uh, its collapse is part of a larger decline, I believe, of a certain style of ideological conservatism that reached high points in 1980 and 1994 and collapsed in 2006. The end of the religious right certainly does not uh, signal a decline in evangelical Christianity. On the contrary, it is a sign of a new reformation among Christians, Warren and Sizek are representative figures, who are trying to disentangle their great movement from a political machine. This historic change will require liberals and conservatives alike to abandon their sometimes narrow views of who evangelicals are and what they believe. And it will encourage conservative evangelicals, I think, to reopen lines of communication with more progressive Christians and with others on the center and left in politics. A few years ago, I edited a book with my friend John DiUlio uh, called What's God Got to Do with the American Experiment? We noted that the question in the title might well provoke two legions to mass against each other. They would offer sharply differing accounts of the role of God and organized religion in creating and nurturing the American experiment. In one view, it is America's pluralistic and secular constitution that has promoted freedom, diversity, and oddly, the very strength of America's religious communities. A state independent of organized religion has been freedom's and religion's finest friend was not a central motivation for the creation of free and tolerant institutions, a desire to end wars over God and religion. In the other account, freedom itself is rooted in a theistic commitment to the inviolable dignity of the individual human being. The belief arises in the words of the Declaration of Independence from the law of nature and nature's God. A belief in God places healthy restraints on the human tendency to deify political systems or individual political strongmen and insists that even strong men are accountable to a higher authority. Now, in truth, these views are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Many Americans, for good reason, hold to both of them. And yet, uh, as we discuss these matters over the next uh, day, I think we will find moments when some of us are more sympathetic to one or the other of these accounts, and moments when all of us find something inadequate about each of them. Um, I think if we're honest, we will always see the paradoxes and ironies of religion's relationship to public life. And yes, my love, Reinhold Niebuhr can probably, for Reinhold Niebuhr can probably seen in my love for those words, paradox and irony. Uh, religion can create community and it can divide communities. 
It can lead to searing self-criticism, and it can lead to pompous self-satisfaction. It can encourage dissent and conformity, generosity and narrow-mindedness. It can engender both righteous behavior and self-righteousness. Its very best and very worst forms can be inward-looking. Religion's finest hours have been the times when intense belief led to social transformations, yet some of its darkest days have entailed the translation of intense belief into the ruthless imposition of orthodoxy. But the history of the United States, at least, uh, despite our many outbreaks of prejudice, nativism, and self-congratulation, is, I think, in large part, a history of religion's role as a prod to social justice, inclusion, and national self-criticism, as a prod uh, for the anti-slavery movement, as a prod for many aspects of the progressive movement, uh, as a prod in many ways for the New Deal, and as a central organizing force behind the civil rights movement. I'd like to close with two views of religion's role, suggesting that at its best, it is prophetic and challenging, often dangerous to the powers that be, and friendly to those who are oppressed and heavily burdened. The first is from Michael Walzer's magnificent book, Exodus and Revolution. Walzer argues that the Exodus story has provided Western thought with one of its central themes of oppression and deliverance, of the idea that the door of hope must always remain open. We still believe, Walzer writes, or many of us do, what the Exodus first taught about the meaning and possibilities of politics and about its proper form. First, that wherever you live, it is probably Egypt. Second, that one sneaks up on you. Second, that there is a better place, a world more attractive, a promised land, and third, that the way to the land is through the wilderness. There is no way to get there from here uh, without joining together and marching. And listen to the historian Richard Whiteman Fox reflecting on the work of Reinhold Niebuhr and of historian Christopher Lash. Both, Fox said, understood that religion can be seen both as a democratic social power, a capacity to build community, and as a tragic perspective that acknowledges the perennial failing of human beings to make community endure. Religion allows people to grapple with the human mysteries that neither science nor politics can address, but it also provides a force that science and politics can call on in their effort to understand and transform the social world. Fox, I believe, explains why we are destined to visit over and over the relationship between religion and our aspirations to pluralism, freedom, justice, and democracy. Only by doing so will we be able to respect the serious religious uh, moral commitments of believers and unbelievers alike. Only by doing so will we preserve free expression and religious freedom, and only by doing so will we create the beloved community that was Martin Luther King's dream and that remains our aspiration. Thank you. This address by journalist E.J. Dion on faith and citizenship was recorded May 3, 2007 at Yale Divinity School. For more information, log on to www.yale.edu divinity.